0: Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Today's psalm is Psalm 34. We will read responsively by whole verse. I will always give thanks unto the Lord. His praise shall ever be in my mouth. My soul shall O oh, praise the Lord with me, and let us magnify his name together.
0: I saw the Lord, and he heard me. He delivered me out of all my fears.
1: They looked unto him and were made glad, and their faces were not ashamed.
0: Oh, the Lord the poor man cries, the Lord fears him, and saves him out of all of his troubles.
1: The angel of the Lord camps round about those who fear him and delivers them in time of need.
0: Let's taste and see how gracious the Lord is. Blessed is the one who trusts in him.
1: O fear the Lord, you that are his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing.
0: Lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall lack nothing his good.
1: Come, children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Keep
0: your, and your
1: Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking lies. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers.
0: The those who do evil, to root out the members of them.
1: The righteous cry, and the Lord hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord
0: is near to those who are brokenhearted, and will save those who are crushed in spirit.
1: Great are the troubles of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all.
0: He keeps all his wealth, so that not one man is broken.
1: But evil shall slay the ungodly, and those who hate the righteous shall be desolate.
0: Lord, us the Lord take All those who trust in him shall not be restate.
1: Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen.
0: Our New Testament reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 10. Likewise wives be subject to your husbands so that Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting themselves to their own husbands Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to
2: God. The Gospel passage for this morning is Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Truly I say to you whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven Again I say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask it will be done by them it will be done for them by my Father in heaven For where two or three are gathered together in my name there I am among them Then Peter came up and said to him Lord how often will I forgive my brother Sin against me? How often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. We're continuing on in the first epistle of Peter to the churches in Asia Minor. And if you'd like to follow along, uh, take out your Bibles, turn to First Peter chapter 10, starting in verse 1. If you would like to follow along but didn't bring a Bible, there are blue Bibles on the wooden bench in the back of the room. Take one of those and feel free to use it. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those blue Bibles is yours to keep as our gift to you. A lot of times, as a uh, as a pastor, I read a lot about preaching and I have a lot of conversations about preaching both with other pastors and with people in the congregation and a lot of times people will say um, what we really need is application we really, give me something to take home that I can, give me a little nugget that I can apply for this week and oftentimes, then uh, when the Bible itself gives you the application like this passage today people will go yeah, I, um, I don't like this at all what, el- what, what else you got? Um, This is a tricky passage. This has been a tricky passage for probably most of the last 2,000 years since it was written. Now, it's tricky in different reasons, in different contexts, and across different eras, but this is the kind of thing that is supposed to be challenging. Last week, we got into this part of 1 Peter, into this thing called the household code, where Peter is giving instructions to Christians living in a Roman context in various cities around what, what they called Asia Minor. This is basically like the, the practical outworking of the biblical pattern that God has set up for his followers, for his image bearers. And so I think it's important as we, as we read through this. One thing that I was keeping in mind this week is a quote from a woman named Sally Lloyd-Jones who wrote something called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, and when she talks about God's law, God's rules for living, she said that it's not, we shouldn't see it as a bunch of restrictive rules, but we should see it as a pattern given to us by our Creator to show us how life works best. And since the tendency of every human being is to eventually gra- uh, uh, gravitate toward kind of self-centeredness or self-satisfaction or putting ourselves at the center of any story and then asking the world around us to kind of organize itself around what we think should happen. There's some reminders in the Bible that that each of us is actually part of a much bigger story that God is telling. And Peter is framing how different people in the Christian community should live not because of the inherent practical value in doing that, right? It's not, not because each of us has a job to do and so we should do our job because that's how society works best. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's giving instructions for different kinds of people to live out their christian witness to live out their new identity their rebirth in christ and we live out our vocations by conforming our behavior more closely to jesus's behavior in all kinds of different situations let me pray for us as we open god's word together god we ask that you would be with us as we contemplate your word As we search your scriptures, we ask that we would remember the words of Jesus, that as we search the scriptures, that we remember that they are, first and foremost, all about him. May we see more of him in this passage. May he be more glorified in this passage. And may our hearts be more tuned to him as we think about these things. In Christ's name, amen. So the way we live out our different vocations or our different, our different roles in life is by conforming our lives more closely to that of Jesus. And Peter's case throughout this whole book, and it's the case he's making now, is that oftentimes conforming our lives to Jesus means submission and actually sometimes even suffering for the sake of the gospel. Submitting or submission is a word that no one except people in extreme positions of power who don't have anyone above them. The only, the only people who want to talk about submission usually would be someone who's at the top of the pile. And so the word submit, what does that even mean? Like it means to actively put someone else's good in front of our own. It's the basic call on all of our lives, each and every Christian, because this was how Christ lived. He was the suffering servant, right? He, he left the glories of heaven, and humbled himself to become a man and then humbled himself further by submitting to the earthly authorities who were unjustly persecuting him and eventually killed him and he submitted to them even though he had done no wrong. It's the kind of, so it's the kind of thing where we, we need to always see Christ as both the exalted king and the suffering servant. It's the sacrificial headship That we live under. Now, we live today in one of the most individualistic, entitled, you-can't-tell-me-what-to-do kind of eras in human history. And the inherent logical fallacy in that is that any one person having that sort of you-can't-tell-me-what-to-do attitude, unless that person is, like, super good at everything... That, that statement, you can't tell me what to do or how to live my life, can only happen in a very highly organized society where lots of different people are working together for the common good. But we live in this, in this age of individualism. And in an age of individualism, nobody, men, women, nobody, like to hear the word submit. But the Bible calls Christians to submit to all sorts of people. A couple weeks ago, Submit to secular authorities. Submit to your local governors and rulers, even if they don't follow Jesus. Submit to your boss, even if she's really mean. Now we get to this. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, realize that your position of authority in the home means that you yourself are in submission to Jesus, and that you yourself are bound to remember all the things that he has told you about how men and women are. So I want to talk a little bit about what this passage doesn't mean. And we're going to do this a lot because this is one of those passages that it's so easy to use it just as a hammer to reinforce a patriarchal, unjust society. So what does this passage not mean? Um, About eight years ago, My pastor, Matthew Mason, put it this way, and and it's always stuck with me. This passage does not mean that every woman is in submission to every man. The reason that I say that is because that was the big idea at a lot of points throughout the history of mankind. And it was certainly one of the dominant ideas in certain points of the Roman Empire when this book was written. But what I will also say is this. If the Bible is God's Word, if the Bible is actually good news, then this also somehow has to be good news for us. And so I think our task, as we see passages like this, which depending on your point of view, you might either be able to immediately affirm or immediately just be disgusted by, our task, if we're going to view the Bible as God's word, is to wrestle with this. And we wrestle with that both on our own, but also with each other in conversations with each other, in conversations with your pastor. Like, this is the kind of stuff where we sharpen each other's perspectives by having conversations about difficult things. And so what I will say is that the biblical pattern from Genesis to Revelation seems to be that in two areas of life, and only two, that there is is an instructional pattern of male headship. And those two places are in the church and in the home. It has nothing to do with out in the marketplace. It has nothing to do within schools. It's in the church and in the home. The biblical pattern from, beginning at, from the beginning to the end of the Bible seems to be an idea of male headship. Now, for much of the history of the world, including, and very embarrassingly, much of the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, passages like this were used... To affirm the idea that women were somehow um, ontologically, or that means like definitionally, like who they are, that they were definitionally lesser than men. There used to be a prayer that, um, and I don't remember it exactly. I wish I'd looked it up, but it just occurred to me. Uh, There used to be a prayer that you know, if if you were going to have kids, um, that you would pray to God that they would be boys, because. Girls were somehow just boys that, you know, didn't quite measure up and then became girls. There was a theory that women, women were actually genetically or even mentally inferior to men. That they were genetically and mentally inferior. And that's just not true. Like, that's, that's kind of low-hanging fruit for, a, 22nd, uh, for a, a 21st century audience, but it's not true. Genesis 1, verse 27, God created man, that's mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So both men and women are inherent image bearers of God. And they have inherent worth and therefore equal inherent dignity. And you have to keep that in mind when you're reading something like this. I think this is the time and the place for a good round table discussion of how the Bible talks about men's roles and women's roles. And we should be having that discussion. In our our churches right now, we have people who come down on either side of that you you would call you would call them complementarians which is men and women are of equal dignity but have slightly different roles and then you would have egalitarians which is men and women are of equal dignity and their roles are the same and there's a compelling case to be made from scripture for both of those smart men and women on either side of that discussion and I think that the most important thing is, as long as we're willing to start with the idea that Scripture is authoritative, and we look at the entire script, entirety of Scripture as a whole, we should be having those conversations and not shying away from them. Quite simply, the Bible goes against the convention of how male and female relationships would look in most societies, sometimes for different reasons. So, some people will use the Bible to say that all women should be in submission to all men; that women are somehow inferior. Let's call that group of people most of human history in most societies until a couple hundred years ago. But those people aren't reading the parts of the Bible where it talks about the inherent worth and value of women. Some people will say there's absolutely no difference between men and women, that they're equal in every way. That's probably most of our society here today, and it's certainly the overwhelming majority of of, of a society that isn't Christian, that doesn't believe in Jesus. But I believe that the Bible speaks about roles and speaks about spheres of authority. And so while the Bible does say that husbands and wives are equal in humanity and dignity, I think, and you can disagree with me on this, I think the Bible is also saying that husbands and wives have different and complementary roles that play out in the home. If you remember this from last week, the fact that Peter is even addressing wives is, like, earth-shatteringly monumental. This household code or moral framework for how people should live their lives, it was only ever written to men. It was only ever written to men because they were seen as the only ones that could process the, like, higher ethical or moral concepts necessary to receive this kind of instruction. And then the running of the household of how wives should behave or servants should behave was just left up to the man, the head of the household. But the Bible puts such a high value on all people, on women, that Peter here has decided to write moral and ethical framework to women because he saw them as capable of of agency and higher thought, capable of possessing the the inherent image-bearing qualities that every one of us has. So he not only addresses wives, he addresses wives first. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Other translations. Submit yourselves to your husbands. Accept the authority of your husbands. Submit yourself to your husbands so that even if some are disobedient to the word of God, your conduct, the way that you live your life, can actually preach the gospel to them. So the outward behavior that he's asking for, submit yourselves to your husband, is a reflection of, of the inward reality of the the changed and reborn nature of these women's lives. The outward behavior, submit yourself to your husband, would have been acceptable to that society at large. Nobody would have questioned that. Of course they should. But the motivation behind it, the reason why Peter is calling them to do it, that's what's new. I mean, anyone can say, wives submit to your husbands because otherwise it's going to go really bad for you. Wives, submit to your hu- wives will submit to their husbands if they know what's good for them. You know, if I, as, I, as we're raising our son, if, if I was to raise him to behave in certain ways, to, to do some things and not do other things, I can eventually get a good pattern of behavior out of him, right? Like, I can eventually kind of shape him into the behaviorist that I want him to be. But if the only reason that I give him for acting that way is because you'll get punished if you don't do what I say, then I might raise someone who's only good at avoiding punishment. But I certainly won't raise someone who sees all of their actions, who sees their entire life as a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It won't ever be internalized. And that's Peter's goal. That's why he's saying these things. Our lives, our daily postures, our choices... The choices that we make every single day are all a response to the gospel of Christ. They are a response to the, the living hope that Peter has talked about, that each and every follower of Christ has, bor- has been born into. They are a response to the, the cornerstone that we as living stones are resting on. Wives, submit to the authority of your husbands, even if they disobey the word of God, it says. And, and that could mean a couple things. Even if they aren't believers. Even if they aren't believers, submit to your husbands. Or even if they're like baby Christians who aren't mature enough to fully submit to God's law. Either way, submit to them because your actions in the home can be as much of a a witness, can be as much of an evangelizing tool as your words can. And I think there's a clear evangelistic intent in this marital submission that Peter is calling Christian women to. Because our actions in life always flow out of our worldview. The things that we do, the choices that we make, they always flow out of how do we see the world. And so if, if women, if wives, if wives can practice the kind of bold submissiveness that Peter has been calling for, not being doormats, not being pushovers, but actively making the choice to submit, in the same way that Jesus did. If wives can do that, it can speak volumes in the home about the hope they have within them without a word ever being spoken. And so in the same way that we are called to submit to the emperor, wives are called to submit to their husbands. Even if the emperor is not a Christian, we're supposed to submit. Even if our husbands are not Christians, wives are supposed to submit. And it was becoming more and more common in Peter's day that there would be Christian wives and pagan husbands. And it's still common today. Throughout the history of the church, the church has always been more than 50% female. Except that in that day, if a wife became a Christian but the husband wasn't, in that day it was expected that the wife would still follow the religion, the pagan religion of the husband. So Peter's saying here that the Christ-like thing to do, even when the wife has discovered the the way, the truth, and the life, even when the wife has discovered the true nature of how the world works with Jesus Christ at the center of it, that she shouldn't break with her husband, that she shouldn't lord that over her husband, but that she should still act in the exact same way that Christ acted to earthly authorities, in gentleness and in boldness submission our actions and our patterns of livings tell others what's important to us and it tells them where our values lie and Peter is exhorting different categories of people right last week it was servants and masters this week it's wives and husbands and he's exhorting them to establish habits and patterns that don't provide a, 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 a physical and, and visible contradiction to the words that we say He's telling us to comport our lives in such a way that match with the words that we say. And so when we say things like Jesus is Lord, when we say things like, you know, my hope is placed in nothing less than than Jesus, I've just messed the words to that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If our actions aren't comporting with that, what does that say about the words that we're saying? He then goes on to actually give these wives some... Some practical little takeaways. He goes to give them an example from that cultural context about braids and gold. And so if you're if you're following along, that's verse 4. Allow me to sum up verse 4 in modern, in kind of a modern parlance. Basically what he's saying is don't try to gain the world's approval by conforming to the world's patterns. That's all it is. Does that mean that that does what he's saying is he's giving an example for women who were living at that time in that place. Does it mean that, that for all across history, for the rest of time, it's a sin for a Christian woman to braid her hair? No, that's simply not what it's saying. Braids might signify something different in different lands and at different times. And so if, if we're living in a time and a place where a woman's braided hair would signify hardworking or student or something else, then go ahead, braid your hair. But if, like at that time, if braids meant conspicuous consumption, if it meant intentional objectification and self-glorification, then maybe braids back then would be, for us today, like cosmetic surgery. Maybe it wouldn't, but that's just one possible example. Basically what Peter's saying is that we need to avoid the outward trappings of opulence, that are only done in in a desire to gain the surrounding culture's appreciation of our physical form. We should also think about who Peter was talking to in this. So women adorning themselves to emphasize their physical appearance was often at that time seen as a sign of seduction or a sign of deceptiveness to try to draw someone in. And so it was okay for a woman to do that in her home because the presumption was it would only be for her husband but it was seen as shameful to do that out in public apart from her husband if a woman was out in public by herself with braided hair or wearing gold it was often seen as a sign that she was trying to seduce but the thing is at that time and in this time too there were always always more women in the church than men there would have always been women leaving their homes to go to a worship service or to a fellowship meal. And so women by themselves pursuing the things of Christ, if they were adorned in what the world would translate as seduction, would set up a real, dis- a real distinction and almost a, a kind of a clanging contradiction between how they're presenting themselves and the witness that they're trying to give. Imagine women leaving their homes to gather with the church but dressed up like they were open for business. Peter is saying here that we can't dress in a way that would send mixed messages. And N.T. Wright put it like this. He said, have you ever noticed how all teenagers tend to dress alike even when they're trying to express their individuality? And they do that because they're seeking the approval of others that they can identify with. And so he asks the question, who do you identify with? Because as Christians, your beauty comes from your identity. Your worth doesn't come from something that you slap onto the exterior of yourself. Your worth comes from who Jesus says you are. The worth that you are trying to, that, that, that you should be thinking about, is not the worth of your exterior, it's the worth of your whole person, the worth of your whole life. An identity as an heir in the promises of Christ. And, and it's the same with men but a little bit different. We'll see this in a few minutes. Men will oftentimes, maybe not so much think of physical beauty, but they'll think of power and how they can project power. And we'll see that real power doesn't come for men from being physically dominant, despite what oftentimes the world would tell us. Real power for men, for Christian men, comes from their identity. It comes from their identity as as rebirthed living stones. As brothers and sisters in Christ that he bled and died for. And when we have been rebirthed as living stones, we are solid as granite, but alive in a way that we were never alive before. That's power. But it isn't something that we gin up on ourselves. It's something that Christ gives us. So what, he, what Peter's saying to both husbands and wives is don't get focused on on adorning yourselves with external things. But since you have already been adorned internally with Christ, it's now okay to act like that. And so if we are if we're living stones, if we are adopted sons and daughters, if our citizenship in the kingdom of God ensures us, guarantees us, that we have a passport into the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ comes back and make all things new, and that passport ensures us that we are going to be honored guests at a party that literally never ends. If that's true, then we don't need to focus on impressing the people around us in whatever means the people around us have said is impressive. Peter mentions this thing about Abraham and Sarah. In the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah were the ancestors of the entire kingdom of Israel. And they were very old, but God promised that through them, even though they were so old they couldn't have children anymore, God promised that through them he was going to give birth to an entire nation and raise up his chosen people. And that through their offspring, everyone in the entire world would be blessed. And you can plainly see, if you read the Genesis narrative of Abraham, that despite their failings, Abraham and Sarah had a relationship that was truly based on love and respect. Sarah was not portrayed as being in like a groveling subservience to her husband. In fact, there's three times in Genesis where Sarah gives instruction and Abraham goes along with what she says. But by the same token, Abraham was clearly the head of his household. And Sarah saw it that way too. In Genesis 18, which is the passage that Peter's referencing here, Abraham is visited by the Lord. And he's visited by the Lord in the personification of three men that come to visit him. And theologians often say that this is, a, this is a representation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those three men said that in one year, Abraham and Isaac, I'm sorry, Abraham and Sarah, even though they were old and beyond childbearing years, were going to have a son. And Sarah said, how can this be? since my Lord over here and I are so old. Now, she didn't mean Lord in the same way that like we mean, you know, O Lord our God. She wasn't saying that Abraham was a god. But what she was saying is that he's my master, the head of my household, the one who I take direction from. And she says that unapologetically. An earthly superior. That's what she called him. And Peter points that out. Sarah was a godly woman. Sarah was wise. Sarah sometimes had better ideas than Abraham did. And Sarah submitted to the authority of her husband. And so Peter here is saying Christian women, you can imitate your spiritual ancestor in the faith, Sarah, and submit to authority. Here's another thing about what this doesn't mean. This does not mean, much like if you remember a couple weeks ago when I was talking about submitting to the emperor. Submitting to local governors. Does that mean we have to go along with every unjust, unlawful thing that they say? No, it doesn't. So this kind of submission to your husband does not mean that a wife has to submit to every whim that her husband has or or follow him down sinful paths. And it doesn't mean that a woman is any lesser than a man. Think of it like this. Um, I always... I always bristle, or I'm always a little bit worried about using military metaphors when I never served, and there's people in the congregation who have, because I might get it wrong, but we're going to give it a shot. Um, Think of it like this. A sergeant in the military is no less of a soldier than a lieutenant is. They just have different roles within the, the structure of the organization. And a sergeant is certainly not under any obligation to start obeying illegal or immoral or unethical orders from his lieutenant because that would violate the oath that he took. And so it's the same thing here. Wives are called to submit to their husbands because God has given the spiritual authority in the home to the husband, but authority can be abused. We know that authority can be abused. People are inherently sinful and power can corrupt. And as I genuinely believe that it is a blessing for for us today to be living in a time when the abuse of authority is increasingly being dragged out into the sunlight so that it can be dealt with. And so while, uh, while abuse isn't at the center of this passage, it is obviously one of the things that comes up when you consider this passage. When people are being called to submit to one another. So, what if in this submission process, what if the authority is abused? How should a woman respond how should a woman continue to submit to the authority of her husband if her husband is abusing that authority? Passages like this have been, convinced, have been used to convince wives to return to their adulterous marriage. Passages like this have been used to convince wives to return to an abusive home. And I wish I was talking about a couple hundred years ago. I'm not. It's today. That's t- that sort of thing still goes on today. And that is wicked and it's just wrong. It's actually twisting God's word, and you could make a case that it's taking God's name in vain. So, um, in a passage about marriage, it's weird to talk about abuse and divorce, but here we are. Um, the, the church has historically held that there are three reasons why people can seek a divorce on biblical grounds. It's the three A's. Adultery, abandonment, Abuse. And I can give you you explicit scriptural backups for each of those three, and I'm right. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. If one spouse is sleeping with someone who isn't their spouse, then they have broken the marriage vows. They have broken the covenant. If one spouse up and leaves their spouse and moves to a different city, starts a new life, they're the ones that have broken the marriage vows. They've broken the covenant. Now, abuse is tougher. I mean, it's it's just tougher. Physical abuse is an easy thing to determine. Sexual abuse is an easy thing to determine. What about emotional abuse? That's harder. It's more nuanced. It's, it's fuzzier edges. You know, where's the line between my husband yells at me sometimes and my husband is an emotionally abusive monster? It takes wisdom and community. Wisdom and community, two things that the Bible says are to be found in the church. But the bottom line is this. If someone... Is abusing. If a man is abusing his wife, he has broken the marriage vows, he has broken the covenant. And she is perfectly right in leaving. In fact, it's it's what Peter's talking about in these next verses. Likewise. So everything is built on Jesus, right? Like if you trace this back far enough in First Peter, it's Jesus suffered, Jesus submitted. So, likewise, citizens of secular kingdoms submit to the rulers. Likewise, servants submit to your masters. Likewise, wives submit to your husbands. Likewise, husbands. Now we get to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you. They are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a lot there. Now, it's easy to get tripped up on women are the weaker vessel, right? I can, I can see some of you. Um, it is easy to get tripped up on that. Let me be very clear about this. Plainly speaking, taken across a big enough sample size, men tend to be physically bigger and stronger than women. That's just the way that we are built. That's all that this weaker vessel thing means. I have heard it before. I have heard it before in terms of that, they, that, that it's addressing a mental state, that it's addressing an emotional state. It isn't anything except physics, physical. So, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or live with your wives knowingly. Live with your wives. What it really, literally says is live with your wives with knowledge. Okay, knowledge of What? Knowledge that they are heirs with you. Knowledge that you are all citizens of the same kingdom. That that if you're a living stone and she's a living stone, then you are cemented right next to each other in this great structure that God is building with Christ as the cornerstone. So, live with them in the knowledge that you are heirs to the grace of life in order that your prayers may not be hindered. Which is... It almost sounds like like kind of a superstitious warning, but one commentator put it this way. Peter's warning about prayers is not some hex that he's putting on them, like, be nice to your wives or God won't listen to your prayers anymore. He's not saying that. His warning is actually far more serious and should be taken far more seriously because ineffective prayers means a failure to communicate with God. A failure to communicate with God is always tied to this like comprehensive misunderstanding of who God is and what he wants from us. It's an error that it can only find expression in the way a husband comports himself. You know what I mean? Like our behavior is indicative of what we believe. And so if a husband is not treating his wife with honor and respect, are we sure that he really understands the gospel? That's what he's saying. What does our behavior say about our understanding of who God is and how he calls us to be? What does our behavior say about our understanding of what a covenant is? If you were with us last fall when we were going through Abraham, I'm sorry, when we were going through Genesis, actually in this this Abraham cycle, we talked a lot about covenants. And a covenant is not just a contract, right? If you do this, then I'll do that. You be nice to me, and I'll be nice to you. That's a contract. Nothing wrong with that. But in in Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham, and it was a unique kind of covenant. It was a one way covenant. I am going to pour out my love for you. Full stop. Doesn't say anything about conditions of what you have to do for me. I am going to pour out my love for you, and if I ever stop pouring out my love for you, I will kill myself. That's what God was saying to Abraham. That's the unbreakable one way covenant of grace and the covenants that we are called to keep are similar to that. We can't make them perfectly. I can't say to my wife, "I am going to pour myself out for you regardless of what you do for the rest of our lives and I will never deviate from that." I want to be able to say that, but I can't. But that's what that's the pattern that we're called to. It's the pattern that Peter is setting up here. Wives, submit to your husbands even when they aren't perfect. Husbands, submit to your wives even when they aren't perfect. Because our witness into the world is important. And our witness into the world is partially based on what we say, but it's also based on how we act. And so if we act in this covenantal, self-sacrificing way, it might not speak clearly the truth of the gospel, but at least it won't hinder it. At least it won't get in the way of it when we treat our fellow image-bearers honorably. And this, is, this is the part for the husbands. If you treat your fellow image-bearing wife as a, as a co-heir, if you treat her honorably, then that's, that speaks volumes about what you believe. But if you aren't treating her honorably, doesn't that equally speak volumes about what you believe? Our witness into the world is based on who we say God is. And so, wrapping up all of these instructions that Peter is giving to these different spheres of of influence, to different types of roles that we have. Servants, masters, wives and husbands. All this submitting is actually done for a purpose and again that purpose is not to create an orderly society. The purpose is not to create households that run really well. God actually commands us to live that way because how we relate to one another is an example of how our actions can demonstrate Christ to one another and to the world. So when we see our wives submitting to our husbands and perhaps even suffering a little bit for it, we see a physical example of how Jesus submitted out of his love for those people and suffered for it. When we see our husbands treating our wives with honor and dignity, pouring themselves out, treating them like like fellow ambassadors. We see a picture of how Christ leads his church into the eventual renewal of all creation. And that renewal is where our hope is. And that renewal is where our hope is. Speaking about the hope that we have in Christ, one of the ways that we can demonstrate our, our trust in Christ is how we treat one another. And so we know that when that hope is, is perfected, when that hope is, is achieved and made a, a current reality for us, when Christ, re- when Christ returns and we all live in perfect communion with him forever on a remade earth with resurrected bodies, we know that actually these relationships that we're talking about will be healed as well. And at that time, there won't need to be instruction. There won't need to be any instruction about how to treat one another because we already will be doing it. We already will be imitating Christ because we'll be with him. There's there's an expression in in kind of the the theology and the doctrine of sin that, it's a bunch of Latin that I won't go into, but basically before the fall, man was capable of sin and capable of not sin. Now, in this in-between time, Man is not capable of not sin. That is, we cannot be perfected in this moment. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it says that mankind will not be capable of sin because we will have been perfected, resurrected in the presence of Christ, glorifying him forever. And so the relationships that we're talking about here, husbands and wives, servants and masters, those relationships will be perfected as well. But until that day, when, when we're still in this in-between time, we desperately, desperately need the grace of Christ as we deal with one another. Because all of these things, all of these ways that we're supposed to submit, we are going to fail at them. We're going to get them wrong. And so we need to be reminded of the grace of Christ in forgiving our sins, and we then need to take that grace and pour it out horizontally. And we need to, we need to have grace for one another when we fail in these in-between times. Submit to one another, Peter says. Submit to one another out of reverence for King Jesus who submitted himself on our behalf. We follow Christ by pouring ourselves out for one another. So our, mi- our, our mission, our mission of following Christ contains in it these relational Submissions. we ask for his grace for when we get it wrong and we know that, that how we live our lives is going to reflect back on who Jesus is. If you have questions about this, if you have complaints about this, if you think I'm dead wrong about this, don't be afraid to come and talk to me and talk to one another. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you first and foremost that you are a gracious God. We thank you that you are a gracious God who made a one-way covenant with your people that can't ever be broken, that you will do these things for us regardless of how well we give back to you. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Son who came to earth, who humbled himself, who suffered and died and was raised again so that we too might be reborn into new life. I ask that as we consider these things about these patterns of how we're supposed to live our lives, that you would, re- you would remind us of them. That you would remind us that these, that these patterns are in fact missional. That they have a purpose beyond just shaping ourselves. That they, that they help shape the world around us. That they are tiny gospel proclamations. And I pray that if there is dissension among us about how these things are to be interpreted, that it would be that it would be the kind of dissension where we can, we can disagree without fracturing, where we can come together and actually have conversations that are helpful to us all. Pray all these things in Christ's name.